Ready? You sure? Yeah, all right, there you go. Hey, let's get out our Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 20. We're in verse 29, and uh, we will get things rolling here. Let me pray to kind of prepare our hearts and get me focused here too. Lord, thank you for what we've, uh, what we've experienced, Lord, as we've, as we've sung praises to you, God. You are the great God of the universe, and, and Lord, it's so easy for us to forget during the week who you are, and, and, and we, we can just be so distracted by the to-do lists, the, our schedules, the responsibilities we have. And God, that's why we need Sunday mornings, to remind us, to help us uh, to, to change and to grow and to re- remind us who you are, the great God, the mighty God, the God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who cares for us, who sent his son to die for us, the God who cares about our weak. So Lord, help us to, as much as we get distracted, Lord, to remember you more and more, to see you truly in our lives, and God, to to. Uh, to, to want to serve you, to want to reflect your glory during the week too. So Lord, as we, we get in your word now, Lord, we pray that you would use your word to confront us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to spur us on, to know you more, to serve you better, and Lord, to point people to you, to, for us to share the great news of the gospel, Jesus Christ, who you are, Lord, with our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. So we love you, Lord, and pray now as you as we open the word that you just teach us, open our eyes, in Jesus' name, amen. So in uh, November of 1991, fierce winds from a freakish dust storm triggered a massive freeway pileup along the I-5 in uh, the middle of California, near Coalinga. At least 14 people died and dozens more were injured as topsoil whipped by 50-mile-per-hour winds reduced visibility to zero. Renee and I were on one of those trips uh, through the Central Valley, and our car was leaning over as we were driving. There's there's trucks, sometimes on two wheels, these big, big rigs they had to pull over. But when these windstorms go right through the Central Valley, it is so crazy, and it can be impossible to see. At least 14 people died. The afternoon holocaust left a three-mile trail of twisted and burning vehicles, some stacked on top of one another, 100 yards off of the side of the freeway. Unable to see their way, dozens of motors drove blindly ahead into disaster. Unable to see, and it led to disaster. Today, we'll see just the opposite. We'll have two blind men in our story, and it's such a significant story. It's a key, uh, a key point in the gospel of Matthew. They were unable to see physically, but we see that they, they truly perceived who Jesus was. And they become the ones who become the announcers of the arrival of the king. Jesus was headed up to Jerusalem, and yet there, those who were physically able to see were actually truly blind. And so we see this in a, in a twist. It's a, it's a story that, that makes us take notice. They were healed, and we see them coming to salvation, and they were rejoicing. They followed Jesus, but we see that the crowds and the religious leaders who are with Jesus, opposing Jesus, were actually blind. They were the blind ones in this story. Even in the last section, because what did Jesus announce to the disciples in the last section? 
the last passage we looked at. Hey, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and die. And it says in Luke, they didn't get it. They missed the point. They were, in a sense, blinded. And we'll talk about why they're blinded more today. Two blind men saw Jesus and became the ones who truly announced the arrival of the king. So, so let's, let's read today's passage and then uh, let's ask that God would help us to see. All right? Help us to not be blinded. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, followed Jesus. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be quiet, silence. (laughs) But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me, for me to do to you, for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity and compassion, in deep care and concern, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So as we, as we walk through this, first thing you know I, I'd like to do this, I'd like to help us kind of go back, right? We need to go back into this passage But we also, many times, we need to understand the physical surroundings of what's going on because it makes a difference. You've heard of Jericho before, ever? Well, it's a significant city, and it it, it has a message for us as well in this passage, all right? There's, There's physical landmarks as we're reading through the Gospels that we're supposed to take notice of. So, first of all, you can go to the next slide, the next slide, the next slide. Oh, no, actually, that's a good one. Go backwards. So here's, here's Jericho, all right? So we've got Jericho, and it's, it's in what's called the Jordan Rift Valley, okay? And what you don't know about Israel, maybe you do, but most don't, is that in, in the inner part, the Jordan Rift Valley, it's actually way below sea level. You will get up to 1,300 feet below sea level down there, the Dead Sea. You've heard of the Dead Sea? Well, that's just south of Jericho a little bit. So it's way below sea level. All right, so you go from, from Jericho, which is 846 feet below sea level, and if you're going to go up to Jerusalem, where Jesus was headed, okay, that's where he was headed, he was going to be there in just a day or so, okay, you have to climb 3,300 feet in, in a period of basically 14 miles, a straight shot to Jerusalem's 14 miles, the road is actually over 20 miles, but it's a huge climb, all right? But Jericho is a key city in the history of Israel, right? And you can go to the next picture when you start, you'll see what it looks like. So you've got Jericho way down there, and you've got Jerusalem way up on top. And when you read in the Gospels or even in, 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 uh, in the Old Testament, you see you hear them saying, going up to Jerusalem. They literally mean that because it was up on the central ridge of mountains that went right down the, the center, the spine of Israel. So they'd go up to Jerusalem. Matter of fact, you'll, if you look in the book of Psalms, you'll see the Psalms of Ascent, of Ascents. That means the songs that the Jews would sing together as they're going up to Jerusalem for the great feasts. Matter of fact, next week's passage, we find the people when they're at the triumphal entry, that's what we're in next week, where Jesus is presented to Jerusalem, the king has come, and you'll hear the people in their shouts to Jesus, they're actually quoting from the Psalms of Ascents. Why? Because these, there's a bunch of pilgrims that weren't just following Jesus here in this passage. They're all headed up to Jerusalem for Passover, the great feast of Israel. 
That is the number one feast that, they're, that all faithful Jews were supposed to celebrate in Jerusalem. So we've got a whole pilgrimage going on. But here in this scene, we have them following Jesus. All right? And they're going to head up to Jerusalem. You go to the next slide. So you can see that here's the central ridge here, the Judean hills. You have Jericho way down here, and then they just go up this road. And I have some cool pictures of when, we were, when I was there. Just, you see there's monasteries and the cliffs along the side that are built in. There's just some cool pictures. But that's where they're heading up. But why is Jericho significant? It's ancient Jericho was in what book? Okay, Joshua. Who lived in Jericho? Rahab. We'll get to Rahab in a second. But what you need to know about Jericho is it was a strategic city. When Joshua led the Jews to finish up the Exodus, right? Moses hands over the baton of leadership at the end of Deuteronomy. We see at the beginning of Joshua, Joshua is now the leader. They cross the Jordan, and the first city they come to is part of their conquest is Jericho. It was called the gateway to the heart of, of, the, of the land of Canaan. It was a strategic city. It was a trade city. It was a city with huge walls. But that's where... In the Exodus, you got to remember, in the Jewish mind, the Exodus was not just going through the Red Sea with Moses and being in the wilderness. It's also when it finished up going in to conquer the promised land. That's the Jewish mind. It's a 40-year period. So when they talked about Exodus and deliverance, it was deliverance from Egypt, but deliverance into the promised land. So I've mentioned this many times. Let's see if you remember this. When Jesus was doing the Sermon on the Mount, the people were also drawing connections to ancient Israel's history because of what Jesus was doing. Do you remember what they were thinking of when he was up on Sermon on the Mount? He's delivering the law. Well, who's, who are they thinking of? Moses. The messianic expectation of that time and it was promised by Moses as well and in the prophets that there was going to be a second exodus. There was going to be a deliverer, the Messiah, the promised one who was to come. So all through Jesus' ministry, they kept asking, are you the Messiah? And he kept saying, well, here's the proof. But here's the deal. When Jesus, before in this scene here, he had just been a few weeks east of the Jordan River, where was the book of Deuteronomy under Moses when he's delivering his final sermons? That's what Deuteronomy is. Where did that happen? East of the Jordan. So Jesus is over there, and now he's coming across the Jordan. He's going by Jericho. The mindset is, is this the one? But here's the deal. When they expected the Messiah, their Messiah was a political Messiah. The one promised in the Hebrew Scriptures was also something that he kept highlighting, but they kept missing. It was a suffering Messiah. And he just told the disciples, I'm going to suffer and die. And they don't get the point because they've been raised in a culture. Who, who, did, who taught the disciples what they knew? The priests, but mainly the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the, pre, the, the religious guys out amongst the Jews, out in the cities, doing all, most of the teaching. And the Pharisees had enculturated the Jews to expect 
you know, here's how you live the Christian, or not the Christian life, the godly life, right? They modeled an external righteousness. That was how they were raised. But they were expecting a Messiah to kick who out? The Romans. They were expecting a political deliverer. That's why when Jesus, and by the way, in the last passage, it was the third time he told them, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. It was the third time, and they still didn't get it because, and folks, we are just like them. We miss the point so often, do we not? Well, they did too, because they were raised to expect a political deliverer. So he's going by Jericho, and then these two blind men call him for what he is, and, and, and there's also something else going on here too. There's a spiritual geography to Jericho as well, and, and we brought up her name. Who lived there? Rahab. What was Rahab? She was a prostitute. She was a pagan. All right. So in Joshua 2, we have Joshua sending over two spies to go scope out Jericho and the surrounding areas before they come in to start their conquest. The two spies go to Jericho and they come in and they, they, they're seen somehow and so they have to be hidden. And Rahab takes them in. She's a prostitute, runs a brothel of some type. And her, her place is on the wall, and, and she hides them and lies to the guards and then sends off the spies, but she protects them. And, but she said, hey, we've heard about y'all. Forty years ago, we heard what your God did to the Egyptians. He says, all the nations here in the promised land, he shouldn't call it the promised land, all the surrounding nations we've known, and we've been trembling in our boots and yet her reaction, her response, her decision was not to close up the walls of the city and get ready to fight. What was her reaction? She made a confession of faith in the God of Israel. She says, hey, when you come, we know, I know your God is going to give you this city. I know your God is the true God. So when it happens, we just pray that you'd show us mercy. And that's what the spies said. Yeah, because of your help for us, you're saved. And we find out later that indeed when the wall collapsed, her part of the wall wasn't, her family was saved. They put out, they, to, to signify the place to that, you know, the, when the Jews were going to destroy the city, to signify, hey, this is the safe house, what was she supposed to hang out of the window? A what? A, a crimson cord, scarf. Crimson, isn't that interesting? Interesting color, red. Hmm. Anyways, the point is, though, as we find out through in, in the book of Joshua, that she actually got married to one of the leaders of the tribe of Judah. Oh, and then we find out she actually became one of the, she became part of the line of the Messiah. She actually was in the one of the ancestors of Jesus. God brought a prostitute because of her desire to worship God, to be faithful. God has a prostitute, a former prostitute, in the line of the Messiah. What does that tell you about God? What does He do? He redeems. doesn't matter your background. You don't have to be perfect, right? But God redeems people and uses them. And if you look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ in both Matthew and Luke, but in Matthew you see it especially, there are three, actually four, scandalous women in that lineage. God redeems. God redeems. But here's the deal. Why I mention this, why I mention Rahab, is here is a prostitute. Here is a pagan who saw the evidence 
that the God of the Jews was real, and because of that, she risked everything. Because if she would have been found out that she was harboring spies, what would have happened to her? She would have been killed. She risked everything. God rewarded her for it, but here's the deal. Jesus has been offering for three years miracles upon miracles. It was, it was like there was just a full-on harvest of miracles. The blind seeing, the lame walking, the dead being raised. What is that supposed to be? What are miracles supposed to be? Evidence. If you don't believe me for my words, believe me for my works, Jesus said. Miracles were to be evidence. And what was most of Israel doing with the evidence about that Jesus had offered? Disregarding or absolutely denying that it was from God. What instead they said, where did it come from? The power to do these things. From Satan. He called, they called him satanic. So who was really blind? Right? See, Rahab is a voice from the past that convicted the religious elite and most of Israel. A prostitute, a pagan prostitute, saw the evidence and she knew there was a real God. These two blind men, they hear about Jesus, they've heard what he's done, and right away they call him by his official title. We'll see that in a second. But I want us to see this story, if you remember nothing else, it's an it's a, it's a, it's a indictment of what was about to happen 20 miles away when he goes up to Jerusalem. Again, Jerusalem's significant too. That's the city where the, t- the one place you could worship God in all the earth, there, the temple in Jerusalem. That's where the capital was. That's where the throne of David, where it was supposed to be ruled by the king. He's going up there to present himself as king, and yet what do they do to him within a week's time? They crucify him. Well, that's what we're entering into. That's the whole time period. Now, we're entering into, entering into what's called the Passion Week, the final week of Jesus' life, the most significant time of Jesus' life. Matter of fact, the Gospels divort, divort, devote more chapters, more time to this final week than anything else. So we're going to be going through Jesus in this final week with all of his teachings and what he says and what he does. But this is significant that the people who, who announce clearly Jesus' identity and show it by following him are two blind men. That's the point of this story. It's an indictment on what happens at supposedly the most holy city, Jerusalem. Okay, so see that? That's, a, that's a, what's going on here in this section here, the structures to, to shock us a little bit. Why didn't the religious leaders get Why were the disciples even missing it? it this, is, this is good. This is telling. All right. It says a great crowd followed him. So who was in the crowd? First of all, we have disciples, right? Jesus' disciples. They believed in Jesus, but they didn't quite get what's all that's going on. All right. We also have a, a great crowd that also had people who were either just apathetic to Jesus or they were just interested for the buzz because they're hoping that he's what? The Messiah who would deliver him. But we also have people who maybe know who Jesus was, but we have to understand there's a huge crowd because they are going up to Jerusalem for the Passover week, all right? So there's this, a big throng, and we'll see that in the next passage. There's potentially over 100,000 people that are at the scene of the triumphal entry because it's, Josephus would tell us that at the Passover week, Jerusalem would swell from maybe 100-some thousand to over 2 million. 
So we've got tons of people, and Jesus is all the rage right now. But there's a great crowd following. But we also have religious leaders who are there too, watching Jesus, hoping to do what? Hoping to do what? Catch him. Catch him in some kind of mistake so they can discredit him. Because here's the deal. Their expectation. Imagine the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders. What was their expectation that when the Messiah come and how he would respond to them, the religious leaders? What was their expectation? What would the Messiah do when he sees them? Hey, good job, you guys. Hey, you guys get to sit at my right hand. These, you guys have been so faithful. Oh, I love how you serve me. That's what they were expecting. And yet, for three years, and it heightened towards the end of his ministry, how did Jesus treat the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees? He condemned them. Yeah, and they were offended and insulted. They hated him and wanted to destroy him, to kill him. So that's the crowd that's following Jesus. The Messiah, when he did show up, got a very different reaction. He came into his own, and his own received him not. John 1.12. This is a country of unbelief, raised by what Ezekiel calls sick shepherds, Ezekiel 34. Religious leaders who modeled an external righteousness, legalism, Void of heart obedience. A haughtiness of salvation because they were Jews. Children of Abraham. A country largely of unbelief. This is the scene. Because didn't, what did he do when he said, he said what to Chorazim and Bethsaida when he was up in Galilee? What did he pronounce on them? Woe. Woe to you, Chorazim and Bethsaida. If Sodom and Gomorrah had seen my miracles, they would have Repented. But you didn't. You had me for three years. Chorazim were two cities right near Capernaum. Capernaum, you think you're all high and lifted up. If Sidon would have had me, another Gentile city, they would have repented, and yet you didn't. Capernaum was his headquarters for three years in the northern part of Israel. A country of unbelief. And again, we have the plea from the past. That's Rahab. Look at the evidence, folks. He's the Messiah. He is. No one else has ever done anything like this. It's her plea from the past. A pagan prostitute's proclamation of faith. And we have the blind's spiritual sight. They had spiritual sight. Their testimony joins with that of Rahab in convicting unbelieving Israel. That's the significance of this passage, folks. It's an indictment about, on what's about to happen up in Jerusalem. But let's just walk through what happens. The story is not that hard to understand as we walk through when, where we see the, the blind who see. They, they gain their physical sight, right, in verses 30 through 34. First of all, we see their desperation. And behold, what does behold mean that we're supposed to do? Pay attention. Why this specific miracle do they want us to pay attention? Well, hopefully I just unveiled that. Behold, this is significant. This special healing in this special city is to be something that you pay attention to. And that's what we've just talked about. But there's two blind men. We find out from Mark and Luke, they actually focus on one of them, and the one that they focus on is called Bartimaeus. In Luke, why is he, why do you think Bartimaeus would be singled out by name? Well, here's the deal. If Bartimaeus, we find out that the two blind men end up not just being healed, but they follow Jesus, they become disciples of. So Bartimaeus, 
I hold out to you, probably was well known in the church post-resurrection as one of the beloved followers of Christ. This is his testimony. They, this testimony, this miracle here is recorded. Hey, that's Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, this happened to you? Yeah, it did. This is what Jesus did. Kind of cool. Named him by name. And, and when, the, when someone was blind, it doesn't say if they're blind from birth or if there was an injury or some kind of sickness they got, but they were blind, these two. Imagine, and here's the deal, when they are healed, the, the, the Greek word says that they were re-given sight. So somehow these two were not born blind. But imagine having lived some time where you could see colors, shapes, you see the world, and all of a sudden you've been blind. Imagine that. Would you like that? It's almost better to be born blind so you never have the experience, right? But imagine their, their, just their desperation. And, and when you're blind in that culture, you're not in a very good uh, situation, are you? You're at the mercy of others. The, the blind would sit outside the city gates for what? To beg, hoping to get enough to live another day. So they're desperate. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. We see in their cry, they, they, heard, they heard about this Jesus. And all of a sudden there's a crowd and they're like, What's, who is it? And they're like, this is Jesus. In their desperation, they cry out loudly. And by the way, when they cry out, Lord, it doesn't mean they believed he was God. It's just a sign of respect. Lord, have mercy on us. Mercy. That's that word means compassion, kindness, help. For someone who's in serious need, as they're crying out, it's probably a little bit embarrassing too, right? So what character are they displaying? Humility. Remember that theme that's been running throughout chapter 18, 19, and 20? Highlighting the need for humility, and there's a contrast with those who lack it. The disciples and jockeying for position, and the rich young ruler who was arrogantly saying, I'm Mr. Righteous, I've kept all. And Jesus exposes his true idolatry, his wealth. They're showing humility. They're needy. They don't care what others think. And they call him Son of David. That's the official title of the Messiah. He would be the Son of David, 2 Samuel 7. All these passages talk about the Messiah who'd be from the line of David, the promised one, the greater descendant of David, the one that David would call Lord. His own descendant, who's supposed to be lesser since he's the Messiah, David would call him Lord. Psalm 110. They call him the son of David, the promised king of Israel. And then we see their determination. The crowd rebuked them. Hey, shut up! telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more. Here's the deal. The crowd, they're calloused to the beggars, to the lame, to the, to the blind. They're used to having them around. And they're telling them, hey, be quiet. These, you blind men, you're a nuisance to, this, to the king's entourage. If he's the Messiah, he's going to deliver those Romans. He's the king. Where is his entourage? But they refused. They determined to be heard and seen by the king. They didn't let public pressure and opposition get in the way of their desire to have Jesus see them. Okay, boys, this, this is an obviously easy application. Do you care that people know you're a Christian and maybe ridicule you? We're in a culture that more and more 
is ridiculing those of the Christian faith. I was just shown what this last month, there's a, uh, uh, an appointee who's, who's up for um, be, you know, joining Trump's staff, and we've got seven senators who are opposing because this person is a person of faith. Bernie Sanders, you shouldn't be in public office because of your faith. And I'm not, this is not a thing about politics. I want you to understand, though, in our culture, more and more, Christianity is going to be singled out. But will you be like the blind man who doesn't care about public pressure and still cry out more and more, I need you, Jesus, I am your follower? Folks, that's my job to prepare you, not to say, oh, everything's easy and good, don't worry about it. You guys, pressure's coming. It always has throughout history. Things have always gotten worse. We've been in a special time in America, but things are getting worse. There's more persecution coming. Don't be surprised when it comes. Doesn't mean you fight. It means you share your testimony more and more. In Acts, Peter's released from, you know, he's, he's persecuted, you know, he's put in prison, and, and, and he, he, he's released and he shows up to, hey, you know, to the, to the disciples, hey, God freed me from prison. And, he, and it says that the, the believers were gathered at that time, and you know what they're doing, despite all the persecution, you know what they're doing? They're praising God to be considered worthy of the name of Christ to be being persecuted. You know what they prayed for? Not an end to the persecution. It says they're praying for more boldness. They're like the blind man. I don't care what the crowds say. That's Jesus. So we see their cry. That's something that should cry out to our hearts. Are we as, as bold in our testimony? But we see, we see their spiritual sight. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. It's their repeated, desperate, humble plea for mercy from, to the true king of Israel. These blind men see the evidence. They see past the mocking and slander of the religious leaders. The evidence was overwhelming about this Jesus. They truly saw. Verse 32, we see their hope. And stopping, Jesus called to them and says, what do you want, for me, want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. We see in this, we see the compassion of Christ in this for sure. I mean, in contrast to the crowd to tell them to be quiet, we see the Lord in his compassion and his care, he calls them. He stops everything. And, and he has a question. Why do you think he questioned? Do you think he knew what they needed? Well, he asks questions all the time. I mean, for instance, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, do you think God didn't know what was going on? Hey, Adam, Eve, where are you? Do you think he didn't know? He asked questions to, to draw them into the story. And in this situation, we have what? We have a crowd. So he's, he's helping them see what's going on here to pay attention, to stop, to watch, to listen. He's preparing the people. He's setting the stage, not just for their healing, but also for their declaration of faith. They're declaring who he is, but here's the deal. After he heals them, it says that, and they followed him. That's, a, that's, what, that's what disciples do. Jesus, when he healed others, at times it says they just healed him. It says nothing about what they did. So it's a matter of fact, there's, he healed 10 lepers at one point, And it says that the, the 10 went to, to the priest to sh do what they're supposed to do according to Levitical law. But it says only one returned to Jesus to thank him. So we don't often see what happens to these people afterwards, but here it says that they, they, were, they rejoiced and they followed. 
They dropped everything, said, this is the man, we're following him. Their hope was in him, not in the approval of the crowds. Their sole hope was in Christ. And they asked him exactly for what they wanted. As a matter of fact, you know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you don't ask or you don't receive because you don't ask. Yes, ask specifically of the Lord. And if he doesn't give you the specific thing you want, what does that mean? He's not listening? No, he's just saying either no or later. But you can be guaranteed of one thing. Whatever he gives you or decides not to give you, it's the best for you and for his kingdom. So God hears you, but he knows what's best, right? But here the thing is they asked exactly, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Let our eyes be opened. Their hope was in him. They reached out to him. And then we see in their, their physical healing. And Jesus in pity, that word pity is a word that's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a word that's related to, it's the Greek word splagnos, it's a word that means innards, your guts. When you feel deeply, your heart hurts, but when you feel really deep, deeply, your gut gets wrenched. And that's the word used. Jesus didn't just say, oh, I'm going to go heal them, those poor guys. It seems that he was at his core, had, had, had realized their need and, and wanted to help them. He's on a mission to go to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to suffer and die, and yet in his compassion, don't miss this. Don't miss this. God always has time for you and your needs. God always hears. He always knows. He always cares. Here we see it. Crowds around. He's on a mission, and yet these two blind men, he, in his compassion, he's moved deeply to care for them. And he touched their eyes. You know, when he, when he heals, sometimes he touches. Sometimes he uses clay and rubs it on a guy's eyes. Sometimes he doesn't touch at all. They touch him. Who touched him and was healed? The lady who has had the bleeding problem, right? But sometimes he's not even near them, far away. Hey, you can go home now. Your servant's been healed. Your son's been healed. Jesus has the power to heal however whoever, whenever he wants. That's a picture going on here. But he touches them. See, the crowd is watching. It's a big crowd. They're all getting ready to go up to Jerusalem. That's where they're headed. So he stops, asks them a question. They ask for healing, and then he makes sure they see. That's what he does. And what happens immediately? It says they were healed. They received their sight. When Jesus heals, it's immediate, and it's boom. There's no denying. These guys say, oh, I have a backache. No, they couldn't see, and all of a sudden they saw. And that was one of the promises that when the Messiah comes, it says the blind would receive their sight. But see, these blind already could see, couldn't they? They saw who he was, and that's the most important thing. But we see in this miracle, it's a great illustration, a demonstration to see, hey, from lowly Jericho, despised Jericho, we see blind who see the king for who he really is and they go up to lofty Jerusalem and we see the religious leaders, the people who don't see who he is. This is an indictment. They announce who he is and he heals them. And that's really the last one. The blind are saved. It says, and they followed him. 
They didn't leave the scene. They stayed with Jesus. They followed. That's the essence of being a disciple, one who follows after to learn from, to live for, to serve and imitate the master. Folks, if you're a Christian, that means Christ follower. Follower. We are to follow and imitate. But here's, here's the deal. I, I, there's a series, one of the life groups who's been watching, Ray Vanderland, it's called In the Footsteps of the Messiah. And one of the things that the rabbis would say is that rabbis would have disciples. That's what Jesus was doing, is using that model. But it says that the disciples, their goal in learning from the master was to walk so close to him that they would get his dust on their clothes. The goal was to be so close to him, to learn so much, to imitate, to do whatever he want, and to hear what he said, to be so close they didn't miss a thing. That's what it meant to be a follower. How close do you follow Jesus? Once a week for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning is not enough. I'm not talking about earning your salvation. I'm talking about truly following the master. How are you doing at imitating Jesus in your words? Not on Sundays. I'm talking about during the week. How are you doing in imitating Jesus and doing your taxes? Well, that's a tough one, isn't it? How are you doing it when you're in the office place and there's all this office gossip and office politics going on? How are you doing? Can you succeed in the office place being a Christian and following God's ways, not climbing the corporate ladder? Yes, you can. One of my good friends, he's passed on to the Lord, was the CEO of Transamerica, Ron Wagley, was at the Bridge Newberry Park. Godly man, man, hundreds came to his funeral and the, and the testimony of all these people, many of them not Christians, were like, what a godly man. I knew I could talk to him anytime and he'd listen. And there are people who said, I became a Christian because of him and his testimony in the workplace. So let me ask you, how are you doing following Jesus in the workplace? Being like the master. How are you doing when you're out playing around? You have to talk to Quinn how I do out in the waves <laughs> if I imitate Jesus. But how do you do when you're out there playing around when you think no one else is really watching? How are you doing in your private times when everyone else is asleep or no one else is around, it's dark? Are we following the master, getting his dust on us? Challenging, huh? Challenges me big time. And by the way, their cry out, their neediness, what a great illustration of the gospel. Crying out for mercy, the blind are healed and they're saved by the mercy and grace of God. They brought nothing to the table. They're desperate, they're needy, they're poor in spirit, they mourn, right? Beatitudes. And they call out for help. Isn't that what the gospel is all about? The gospel call is to come like that? In the previous story, how did the rich young ruler come to Jesus? He had everything, he had status in the community, he was wealthy, and it seems like he was coming in humility. He ran up to Jesus and knelt before him, except that when he was, hey, you know, Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. What did the guy say? I have kept them all. Whoa! Where's the humility? Where's the sense of need? And when Jesus challenged him, about what his true idol was, hey, are you willing to give it up? What did it say he did? He walked away sorrowful. These guys came with nothing. We bring nothing to the table. We need you. That's 
the gospel attitude we need to have. And it's not just to be saved, folks. It's to walk as a follower. I came to serve, Jesus said, not to be served. He was talking in this previous passage we even looked at. How are the the disciples, when they are supposed to rule and, and lead the church, what did He tell them to rule like? Like the Gentiles who lord it over? Who tell people what to do? Is that what He said? No, He says you're to serve. You're to serve in humble, in humility, and looking to serve and be a blessing to others. And instead of walking away sorrowful like the rich young ruler, these men walked after Jesus. So what an indictment. In this, in this by the way, is the last healing Jesus does in the, in the Gospel of Matthew that we see. This, in this last healing, it's an indictment on what's about to happen up there in Jerusalem. These, these religious leaders were the blind ones, blind to his real identity, and, and so blind they didn't follow him. It's an indictment from lowly Jericho, like I said, as they headed to lofty Jerusalem. It's an indictment from the physically blind on the spiritually blind. It's an indictment from the desperate on those who are haughty, self-righteous, and think they have it all together. Uh, There's a book called An Anthropologist on Mars. Neurologist Oliver Sacks tells about Virgil, a man who had been blind from early childhood. When he was 50, Virgil underwent surgery and was given the gift of sight. But as he and Dr. Sachs found out, having the physical capacity for sight is not the same as seeing. Virgil's first experience with sight were, first experiences were confusing. He was able to make out colors and movements, but arranging them into a coherent picture was more difficult. Over time, he learned to identify various objects, but his habits... His behaviors were still those of a blind man. Dr. Sachs asserts, one must die as a blind person to be born again as a seeing person. It is the interim, the limbo that is so terrible. To truly see Jesus and his truth means more than observing what he did or said. It means a change of identity. See, the crowds saw what Jesus did and said, but they didn't see truly. Do you see truly who Jesus is? If you're, if you're not saved, do you see that he's, he's the Son of God, the one who's offered himself to provide the sacrifice for your sins that you could have eternal life if you would ask for his forgiveness? If you're, if you're, if you're like his disciples who don't truly see Jesus in what he's telling, because he just told them, look, the life of following me is a life of suffering. It's not, it doesn't mean you're going to be, everything's good. So if you're following Jesus and expecting, like some of these word of faith preachers, oh, God wants you to have the best life now. You need to, you know, to be prosperous and rich and healthy and wealthy. If that's what you're expecting, you're missing the point. You're missing what Jesus said. It's a life of suffering. It doesn't mean you won't have a house or anything like that, but the to say that the promises of Jesus for his children are to be healthy, wealthy, and wise is not true. So do you have the wrong expectations of what the Messiah and what it means to follow him, what what that life looks like? Or are you a follower who, like the blind men, are rejoicing because you know what you've received? You're, You're following. You're excited. But here's the deal. 
Are you someone who's pointing other people to that Jesus? See, they didn't care about the crowds. Do you care about the crowds? Do you care if they know you're a Christian and maybe mock you or worse? That's, that's something the blind men challenged me. Do I have their same boldness and their joy? They were overwhelmed by what Jesus had done for them. Are you overwhelmed? Are you? You don't have to raise hands or anything like that, but think about that. May this, may this be a challenge. <laughs> okay, that's, that, we'll leave it at that. But, but may we see these blind men, may we be challenged by them, all right? So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And, and Lord, I thank you for, for pictures like this where we see people who are just, they cry out to you. And Lord, we see what you do to them and, and, and how you change them and how there's, they, there's just a, 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 such a testimony about who you are. And, and Lord, I thank you that this is a picture too. You don't, you don't use the, the wise, the powerful, the lofty of this world. You've chosen to use the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world, to confound the wise, it says in Corinthians. You do that because you're about gaining glory for yourself. You're about redeeming people who are broken and lost and hurting, Lord, and redeeming to to call them your children, to giving us full rights as your children. We've been adopted and become inheritors of all your riches. You said that we have access to every blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms the minute we become a Christian. Lord, thank you. May we be like these blind men who truly see, who don't care what the crowds think, and who just rejoice and follow you. We love you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're doing in us. And God, glorify yourself through us, not just on Sundays, but all the time. Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand as we uh, wrap up our time of worship here.
sing with me how great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. Thank you. 